Welcome to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. Enjoy today's message. May you experience the presence of our Father and may you grow deeper in your relationship with Him. and the stories as God continued to plant churches. And I'm excited about what He's releasing over us as a church here in Pretoria again. I was reminded this morning as we were praying um, that a couple of years ago, Elton, can you light on? Oh, there we go, thanks. Um, we, when we had a, many more students and were a little bit more vibrant in the evening, I remember sitting with our missions coordinator at the time and we put out our faith goal that year to send 200 people, 200 individuals on short-term missions teams during the year. And as we got towards the end of the year, I don't think we quite got exactly to 200. I think we ended up close about 180 or so. Um, but I'm so excited about how God is beginning to just stir that in us again, just release the ability to go, to go across continents, but also across the corridor. And even this morning, we had a team serving in the inner city. We have a team who's on the road coming back from Tosca, which is near the Malopo, where they were doing an outreach there, just serving some pastors and doing training with a, a group of pastors we've been walking a road with. And exciting to see how God is beginning to rekindle this desire to see the gospel come and to see the kingdom advanced. Two weeks ago, I think it was, we had our children's church outreach, and the kids were out there at Live Village, at the orphanage. They were doing their thing. I think the oldest member, apart from the parents who kind of were the taxis for the day and carrying the speakers, the kids were 11 years old and younger, and just so exciting to see how God is beginning to stir in us again a desire for the kingdom. And as I've been sort of praying through this as a leadership group, we've been praying, just bringing our hearts before the Lord, bringing our church before the Lord, God's beginning to speak to us, uh, and He has been speaking to us just about this whole idea of godliness. And to put that in context, I think one of the reasons is that I sense God is, has us on the verge of stepping just back again to a place of effectively reaching people for His name. I was challenged when I saw the videos of the Bible school there where in, um, we were filling venues, 50, 60 students in a Bible school class at a time, enrolling per semester and per year. And I just sense God is wanting to bring us back there, but at the same time, he, like He's been saying to the Israelites and throughout Scripture, often we get this little phrase along these lines where God says, sanctify yourself because tomorrow I will do great things among you. And the principle there is every time purify yourself, set yourself apart. I sense God is calling us to a place of being set apart anew again for Him. Together with that tied in is if we are going to reproduce ourselves, if we're going to be investing into the lives of others, seeing other people come to the faith, grow in the faith, just a, a change in discipleship within their lives, one of the questions that we have to ask is what is it that we are going to be reproducing? What is it that is going to be invested into their lives? And for the last few weeks, we've been slowing down a little bit. We just sense God is wanting us to speak about this idea of holiness and specifically of godliness. We started by looking at just a quick recap for the last two messages around this. For those who weren't with us, we looked at the life of Samson, and we saw that he was a guy who was called from birth. Jesus had appeared to his mom and said, this guy is special. He was exceedingly gifted. He'd find himself in situations and the Holy Spirit would come upon him and there was an anointing to do things that nobody else could do. He was highly favored. At one stage, he finds himself in the desert and he's thirsty and he's moaning and God makes a well just to spring up in the desert next to him and provides for him. He prayed crazy prayers and God answered them. He had position, he had authority, he had been appointed in a sense, recognized as the judge over Israel for many years. He had everything which in the natural we would think is required for success. He had the competence, he had the anointing, he had the giftedness, he had the favor of God upon him. And yet we still read this verse, and I'm sort of rushing through the story, but 
As I said earlier, you can go to our, our podcast and, and do the recap if you want, where he's with this woman who he's been allowing just to invest, not invest is the wrong word, to completely just trash his life, to speak into his life. He's made himself vulnerable to this woman who he never should have. And at one stage we see in Judges 16 verse 20, then she cried out and Samson, the Philistines have come to capture you. And they've done that a couple of times in the past. And every time he would get up and the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him and he'd break the chains and he'd defeat them all. And we get this verse, which I think is close to the saddest verse in all of Scripture. And when he woke up, he thought, I will do as before and shake myself free. But he didn't realize the Lord had left him. And here we find someone who was gifted, was anointed, had everything seemingly going for him, and yet still missed the purposes of God. Still found himself outside of God's purpose. We spoke about this fact that what is probably lacking in Samson is lacking in so much of the world today, and it's a little world called character. And that character that we speak of in a Christian sense is a specific type of character which is godliness. And godliness, we spent a little bit of time looking at what the word means, and we saw that godliness is rooted in love. It's rooted in devotion. Godliness is all about, you know, when you find a, a guy or a girl and you're in this dating stage, you get to know them a little bit. You're asking all of these questions about who they are. You go for that first coffee date. You know, there's a little bit of a butterfly in the tummy feeling where you go for the milkshake and you, you get to know them and you're asking all of these questions, and the questions are all rooted in this one thing. I want to find out what makes this person tick. I want to find out a little bit who they are, what they enjoy. And then the next time we come together, I try and do one of those things that they said makes them come alive. I try and create space for them. That's what young love and all love actually should do. And that's a beautiful picture of exactly what godliness is. Godliness is that place where we are so in love with God that we just want to do what pleases Him. We want to find out what pleases Him, and then we want to do it. We saw this definition that godliness is devotion in action. We can phrase that a different way and say devotion is when our actions not only line up with our words, but when our actions begin to line up with our heart. It's important that we say that, that it's not just empty actions. It's not just doing the right thing with a heart that's away from God. But it's because our heart is yearning for God and towards God. We want to do those things which are pleasing to Him. That's godliness. That's exactly what godliness means. It's the acts that are pleasing to God. Just on this idea of character I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, that when we do counseling with people, when there's relational breakdown, when it's marriage counseling, whatever it may be, very, very, very rarely is marriage counseling around a marital problem. Almost always marriage counseling or any relational counseling is about a character problem. It's either one or both of the parties. There's something inside of their character which is causing brokenness within the relationship. And so marriages don't fail because of marital problems. Relationships don't fail because of relationship problems. Ministries don't fail because of ministry problems. They fail because of character problems. And so we spent a little bit of time looking at character, the importance of character. We saw a text even where, I think it was Paul, he says, what really matters. He says in as many words in the New Living Translation, what really matters is the character, which is the fruit of your salvation. And we spent some time speaking about that. We looked at a, a really high standard that God has for godliness, for church leaders. We saw in Titus and in Timothy a number of different character traits that he mentions there that leaders should demonstrate as examples of this is what a Christian life looks like. We spoke about things like patience and faithfulness in marriage, being holy and just, not arrogant or quick-tempered, not a drunkard, a, a whole bunch of things. You can take those texts in Titus and 1 Timothy 3 and sort of unpack them. And we've been doing that in our small groups as well, slowing down a little bit around the idea of godliness and workshopping it a little bit. And then we found, got to this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 6, 
And as I say that, I realize that I don't think it's 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. And in last week's slides, there were a number of um, incorrect references, so my apologies for that. Um, they're in Scripture somewhere, just not where I said they were. So. And Paul says here, he says, don't I, he says to Timothy, don't spend your time arguing, don't waste time arguing over godless ideas and old wives' tales. Instead, train yourself to be godly. Physical training is good, but training for godliness is much better. It promises benefits in this life and in the life to come. And we've spent a bit of time exactly around this. What does training for godliness look like? In church, we speak about training in the gifts of the Spirit, and we should. And we speak about training in a variety of different things, but we don't spend, I guess, enough time training godliness in our own lives. And so in our small groups, we unpacked this a little bit. We took my message from a couple of weeks ago, and we worked out a little bit of a training program. We said we start by getting a good coach. There, this scripture was really encouraging because it says the grace of God has appeared to us to train us to renounce ungodliness and to live lives that are pleasing to God. And so we have a, a coach in the Holy Spirit. We said we need to do a fitness test. It starts with a self-evaluation, but asking the people around us and our small groups, we've been doing this a little bit, finding out how can I grow? What are the areas that I need to grow in in terms of my godliness? Had some great feedback from some of the discussions that our small groups have been having around this. And then we said, okay, if I've identified some areas that I need to grow in, how can I grow in these areas? What are some of the things I need to pay attention to? What are some exercises that I can do? What could a training program look like for me? Because Scripture says I must train myself toward godliness. So let me be deliberate about doing that. And then we said that the hardest part of any program, it's really easy. I can sign up to gym tomorrow. And I can go to the fitness assessment and I can have the fitness trainer work out the fitness program for me. And all of that is almost fun. It's exciting. It's new. The hard bit is waking up morning after morning and going to the gym and putting in the hard work, changing the diet, changing my habits, not carrying on the way I have carried on. One of my big fears, I know at some stage I'm going to go to a doctor and a doctor is going to look at me and say, Philip, some stuff needs to change. That time of your life has come. The hard bit isn't tomorrow morning and the next morning. It's a commitment to stay the course. And so we spent a little bit of time speaking about that. And one way in which we can work at it, we can commit to doing it, is by finding a gym buddy. Somebody to exercise with. Somebody to encourage us. Somebody to be excited with us. Somebody who is exercising as we are exercising. And perhaps we're not on exactly the same training program, but we're in this together. And then we said that as all good things in life, there's a fee that probably needs to be paid. Scripture says that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So yes, it's going to be hard making those deliberate changes in our lives as we're growing in godliness. We should also be aware that not everyone is going to be excited as we are when we grow in godliness. That there are going to be people who look at us, who ridicule us, who call us stupid and idiot and try and break us down for whatever reason. And Jesus said that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And so that was sort of just a, a quick recap, just a reminder of sort of two weeks as we've been going through these messages, slowing down a little bit about growing in godliness, training in godliness. Small groups, as I said, have been taking time, helping one another, working through this, figuring this out, saying how are we going to grow together as a godly people for a couple of reasons. One of them is because we want to be found pleasing to God. We're going to look at some of those passages again this evening. But also, God, if we're going to be discipling, investing, building into others' lives, we want to demonstrate godliness to them. 
We want to hold before them a, a picture of what it means to truly follow Jesus. So, Lord, we want to establish these things in our lives so that as others come and they look upon us, that they can follow in those footsteps with us. And so we've been speaking about that. What I want us to do a little bit this evening is to take, and it's on the notes again, I think it says in the screen, it might say First Peter, it's Second Peter, and to take the first 15 verses of the book of Second Peter, and to just spend a little bit of time reading these passages, unpacking them a little bit. I'm going to interrupt myself and pop across to some other verses and come back to Second Peter. But this letter is from Simon Peter. Simon Peter was the man in Jesus' time on earth into whom he probably invested the most. As we read the Gospels, as we read the story of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which tells us the story of Jesus here on earth, we see that he was... He had multitudes around him at times, people that he spoke to, taught, loved, demonstrated grace to. And then there were the 120 that remained in the upper room. There was the 70 who walked a closer road with him. There was the 12, which was a circle within that 70, the 12 who we typically would call the disciples or the apostles. The disciple is a misnomer for them because there were many disciples, not just those 12, but the 12 who he would call apostles, who would be those he had entrusted to, to lead and to carry the message further. And within that 12, there was a core group of three, Peter, James, and John. And we read from Scripture that Jesus seemed to have a real affection in a human sense for John. Him and John really got on really well. He had a special place, a soft spot in a sense for John. But Peter was the one who we see most prominent in the Gospels, as the one into whose life Jesus is building. And then what we see is once Jesus has ascended into heaven, he's rose from the grave, he's ascended to heaven, Peter is the one who rises up as a leader amongst the twelve. Peter is the one who, into whom Jesus sort of poured the most and who walked, I think, the closest road with. And it's this Peter who, right at the end of his life on earth, writes this letter for us. And so this letter is from Simon Peter, a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I am writing to you who share the same precious faith we have. This faith was given to you because of the justice and the fairness of Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior. May God give you more and more grace and peace as you grow in your knowledge of God and Jesus, our Lord. And isn't that a great prayer to be praying for the people around us, the people that God entrusted to us? May they grow in grace and peace and in the knowledge of God and Jesus, our Lord. And then he carries on and he says, by His, that's by God's divine power, God has given us everything we need for living a godly life. In other words, and some of the other translations, actually more word-for-word -word translations would say that He has given us everything that pertains to godliness. Isn't that pretty crazy and encouraging that as we sit here, as we're wrestling with this idea of godliness, God says He's already given you everything that you need for godliness. We have received all of this by coming to know Him, the one who called us by Himself, who called us to Himself by means of His marvelous glory and excellence. And because of His glory and excellence, He has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share His divine nature and escape the world's corruption by human, or caused by human desires. There's so much in this text that one could stand still on. What I do want us to see is that God has given you everything that pertains to life and godliness. He says at the end here, these promises, these incredible, these great, these precious promises that He's given us, they enable us to share His divine nature and escape the world's corruption. You see, the world's corruption speaks about the ungodliness. The divine nature speaks about the godliness. What I also want us to see right in the middle there of this, these few verses is the one who called us to himself by means of his marvelous glory and excellence. Before this, we have received all of this by coming to know him. 
I want to emphasize this because we can't overemphasize this point, that godliness starts with knowing Jesus. And so let me just put this out there. If we want to grow in godliness, the first way to do that is to draw closer to Jesus. If we want to grow in godliness, it doesn't start by us getting a tick list and doing all of the right things. We, we need to progress. That's important as well, but it has to start with a heart that is surrendered to Jesus. C.S. Lewis, in his um, famous book, Mere Christianity, he puts a good way for those to help us. He says, if I want to love God, but I know I don't love God as the way I should love God, what do I do then? C.S. Lewis simply says, he says, just simply do what you would have done if you'd loved him fully. Whatever you think you would have done if you really loved him, as you want to love him, just start doing that. But once again, we're not doing it from dead actions, we're doing it because we have a heart that's yearning towards God. And so all of our godliness, all of our action, it starts, as I said earlier, it's our actions lining up with our hearts. See, if our heart is, God, I don't actually want to serve you, but I'm going to do the right thing so that I can look good in front of people. We're missing the whole point. But if it is inside of me, God, there's a heart that really wants to please you. And then we start doing the things that we believe would be pleasing to God. That's when godliness grows within us. But then he says, I have given you everything. As we've been speaking to some of you, as you've been working through these things in small groups, some of the feedback that we've got, some of the comments that we hear is that, you know, it's hard for me to step into godliness because there's this thought in the back of my mind that I cannot achieve it, that I cannot attain it, that I'm, I'm born this way, that I'm always going to struggle with this anger, I'm always going to struggle with this impatience, or I'm always going to struggle with this level of brokenness, I'm always going to struggle with this sinfulness, with a sexual immorality, whatever it may be. I'm just born this way, that's just who I am, and you know, godliness is a great idea, but I'm never going to attain to godliness. What I want to hold before you tonight is that is a lie from Satan. Jesus says that everything that you need for godliness, He has already given you. Yes, it does mean that perhaps there are some things that have become part of my identity, part of who I think I am, that I need to step away from. But here is the beauty of it. Once I see Jesus... And I'm drawn to Him and my, my prayer becomes, Jesus, I want to see me as you see me. God's going to begin to show you that those things which are ungodly are not how He sees you. They're not what He's placed inside of you. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite is true because He says that for us here in Peter, for example. These are the promises that enable you to share His divine nature. His divine nature is godly and holy and pure and righteous. And to escape the world's corruption, which is caused by human desires. Yes, you might be born that way. You might have struggled with those things. Paul writes similarly to the church in Corinth, and he says to them, Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols who commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people. Let me just quickly pause there. He's saying a, a collective word for all of that could be the ungodly people. If you were to take sort of the things that are listed as a requirement for church leaders, in other words, a demonstration of what godliness, of elements of godliness most of these are exactly the opposite of that list. And he says, anyone who engages in this ungodliness, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And too often when we read Scripture, we stop there because this best part is coming. What's this? Some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
And so the great news for you is perhaps you're sitting here and you kind of, as you look in the mirror, you see, God, there is greed hidden within me. God, there is anger, there is frustration, Lord God. There is quick-temperedness that is hidden within me. There is immorality hidden within me. Lord, maybe I'm hiding it really well, maybe not. Other people can't see it, but God, I can see it, and God, you can see it. And tonight, God wants to tell you, it doesn't have to stay that way. He says to this church, these people in Corinth, some of you were like that, but you were washed. You were cleansed. And so tonight, what I want to say to you is don't believe the lie that you cannot be washed and that you cannot be cleansed. Don't believe the lie that you can't sit here and look back over the past and say those things are the past because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. And so some of us, we need to begin to rise up against the lie of Satan that says that we cannot, that we are always going to be stuck in this ungodly behavior because Jesus says, no, you don't have to be stuck in ungodly behavior. And in this verse, he says to us so clearly, how are we washed? How are we cleansed? How are we made holy? We're made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All it takes is for us to begin to call on the name of Jesus and say, Jesus, I recognize this greediness inside of me is not who you have made me to be. So, Jesus, I call on your name, God. And then it says the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, I'm going to allow you to change me. Change is uncomfortable. Change is awkward, and change, what makes it perhaps more uncomfortable than the work itself, is change requires me to lay down my pride. You see, I cannot change as long as I'm saying it is okay to be this way. I'm praying that in all of our hearts would be something yearning, something that says, God, I don't want to be anything that you don't smile over, God. As I said, that's a different edition of godliness. Remember, godliness are the actions that are pleasing to God. So God, anything in my life that is unpleasing to you, I don't want to have that anywhere near me, God. But God, I do struggle. God, this thing comes so naturally, it is so easy for my human nature to fall into drunkenness or deceitfulness or divisiveness. God, it is so easy for my human nature. What is some of the others that he lists here? I can get back to that right page. To steal to abuse people, to cheat. God, it's so easy. And so, Jesus, I'm going to call on your name. And I'm going to trust that the Holy Spirit is going to begin to change me. But I have to be willing to change. I have to be willing to act different, speak different, think different. And I love the Holy Spirit. He will come and do that. And then this passage will apply to you as well. You'll be able to say, you'll be able to own this part in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and say, all of these things are so ungodly. And not some of you were once like that. I was once like that. But I was washed. But I was cleansed. I was made holy. I was made right with God by calling on the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. There is no reason why you should be stuck in any ungodly behavior. You need to banish that lie that says you cannot change. All we need is to be call on the name of Jesus, to know that the blood of Jesus is more than sufficient. I want to challenge us in our lives always to, whenever we come to Scripture, to allow Scripture to set the norm. And then allow the Holy Spirit to bring us to that norm. See, my child is high jumping now. Apparently, that's the thing to do when you're in grade five. So she's on this high jumping thing now. She loves high jumping. She's quite tall, so I guess that helps. And you know when you come to a high jump, they can set the bar. And I guess there are a couple of ways we can approach that. We can go to the coach and say, Coach, that bar is too high. There's no ways I can clear it. Can we put it lower? Or we can say, well, Coach, that bar is too high. I don't think I can clear it, but can you teach me? Will you coach me to be able to clear this bar? 
And so when we come to Scripture, it is the same. We can look at this high bar and say, no, the bar is too high, Jesus. Let's lower the bar. Or we can come and say, well, this is a really high bar. But the coach believes I can do it. So Holy Spirit, would you allow me, will you teach me to reach the bar? Not by my own strength, not by my own glory, not by my own wisdom, but by the grace because everything that pertains to life and godliness has been given to us, Lord. So God, I'm going to come to Scripture and see this bar is really, really high. Let Scripture set the standard and then let Jesus bring us to that standard. Jesus, change me to meet your standard. Don't bring your standard down to meet with me. So God, the standard of holiness in Scripture is really high. I want to attain to it. Because in that is life and truth and joy. So back to Peter. Peter is writing in 2 Peter, and he said, We have been given everything that we need for living a godly life. Good life. He has given us great promises. It's these promises that enable us to take the divine nature, to live it. And then he carries on. He says, in view of this, in view of all of this that we've been given, make every effort to respond to God's promises. Supplement your faith with the generous provision of moral excellence. We read this a couple of weeks ago. And moral excellence with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with patient endurance and patient endurance with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love for everyone. So we need to respond well. Yes, God has given it to us. But we also need to respond to the gift that we have received. We also need to say, okay, God, I'm going to own the gift that you have given me. I need to make every effort to respond to your promise, Lord. So God, as much as it's not about me and what I can do, there is an element of me that needs to respond to be willing to say, I want to be trained in godliness. There's a word here in this passage that I read. We need to add self-control. Self-control, we read in Titus as well, in Timothy, is one of the characteristics that we need for the faith. Self-control is one of those things, as we've been speaking to people, is one of those that's really hard for us to embrace. Not hard for us to embrace, hard for us to live out. So I want to give us a, a couple of passages to encourage us around that. Proverbs is full of people who are self-controlled and not self-controlled, but Proverbs 25, 28, I love this. A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. person without self-control. Some of us may have watched movies of sort of medieval times when you have these cities with walls around them. And the enemy is coming, or perhaps it is sort of the hero in the story. They want to go and take the city. And as they want to go and take the city, or the enemy wants to come into the city, the first thing they say is, wow, the city has walls. And they need to find a way to get through the walls. And then from time to time, there is a city where the walls are broken down, and guess what? That city is ripe for plunder. Anybody and everybody who wants to kill, to steal, and to destroy, to take over the city, it's really easy to do because there are no walls protecting it. And so Scripture says, you and me, when we have no self-control, we are ripe for plunder. When we have no self-control, it is easy for anyone and anything to come and steal, to kill, to destroy from us. Self-control, I have a, a little bit of a sort of a working definition, probably theologically not 100% correct, but helpful, I believe. What is self-control? Self-control is when I begin to take responsibility for my own actions. That's when self-control kicks in. It's when I begin to take responsibility for my own actions. I've got three daughters, and one of the things that I've been at pains to teach them all their lives is this idea of self-control. It's amazing how good we are at not taking responsibility for our actions. Maybe not you, me, and my family. I think my wife one day, when I wasn't watching, she sat my kids down and she taught them to blame shift. I'm obviously being facetious. No one ever taught them that, but it's amazing when something goes wrong, it's someone else's fault. She did it here. It is so hard for us to own it. Don't we see that in Genesis as well? 
Adam and Eve, they eat of this tree, the fruit of the tree they were not meant to eat of. And so God comes to Adam, and what is Adam's first response? The woman. God, the woman you gave me. It's either your fault or her fault, but it's not my fault. And then he speaks to the woman, and the woman says, the man. So my kids are brilliant at this as well. Just nature, inside of all of them, and I guess inside of me too. That taking responsibility for our own actions is so hard. And so one of the things that kind of really freaks me out is when kids, you know, little my kids are still young, they give these shrieks, these yells, especially when it's inside and every nerve in my body kind of, I'm auditive, sensitive normally, so every nerve in my body kind of freaks out when they give these ghastly yells. And so I'll speak to them, I'll say, listen, what made you yell? I'm trying to coach them. I'm not angry with them. I'm not upset with them. I just want to coach them to say, really, there is no need for you to yell like that. There are better ways to respond. And almost always when I say, why did you yell? Why did you shriek? Because it's far more of a shriek than a yell. <laughs> the first answer is my sister, the spider, somebody else. And so then sometimes I get a little bit joking with him. I say, well, explain to me how this works. Does your sister like climb inside of your lungs and your voice box or whatever and make you give this yell? How, how does your sister make you yell? No, my sister made me angry. Ah, oh, okay. So your sister didn't make you yell. You yelled because you were angry. I'm not saying what your sister did was right or wrong, but you take responsibility for your own actions. Self-control. Watch what Galatians says about that. Galatians 5, verse 22 and 23. The Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, that's an easy one to receive. Joy, peace, oh, these are great. Patience, okay, maybe not so, not so easy. When I'm driving and the taxi cuts me off, how much Holy Spirit is in my life? Kindness. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Another thing that God has given us, if you want to grow in self-control, here's a great way to grow in self-control. Spend more time in the Holy Spirit. Because it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit that leads self-control in us. Yes, we need to develop our character. Yes, we need to be deliberate about those changes. But it starts by surrendering more to the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit shows us that we need to take, when the Holy Spirit comes like I come to my kids, and the Holy Spirit says, why did you react that way? And I want to say, because they. And the Holy Spirit says, but I, did they sin or did you sin? No, I sin. Okay, so next time, I'm not going to sin. Even if their sin, I'm not going to cause their sin to cause me to sin. If they cause me to be angry or upset, whatever my circumstances are, I'm not going to let circumstances determine my response. I'm going to let the spur of the living God determine my response. So I'm hoping one day in my home, the time will come that my kids will be there where they get angry because people are going to make them angry. And the response is not one of this ghastly shriek or a yell, but some holy, godly, sanctified, self-controlled response. Where they can hopefully say, right now, and maybe not say it in as many words, but go through this process, right now you are making me so angry. Maybe for them, in our home situation, but I love my dad so much, I'm not going to yell now. And maybe for us, the same principle. Right now, I'm getting so angry, but I love my God so much. I'm going to exercise self-control. I'm going to let my devotion, I'm going to let my love, I'm going to let my surrender and my love for Christ direct my actions. Self-control is an action which is pleasing to God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7, it says to us that God has not given us a spirit of fear, intimidation, timidity, standing back, holding back. We don't have to be timid in any situation. Yes, there is meekness, which is different to timidity, but don't have time to get into too much of that tonight. 
But He has given us a spirit of power and of love and self-discipline. Can I give you a hard truth? You and I, as Christians, have no excuse not to be self-disciplined and self-controlled. We have the spirit of the living God inside of us. We have been given a spirit of self-discipline. It's just, are we yielding and surrendering to the disciplined spirit? Or are we yielding and surrendering to the timid and the fearful spirit? Or are we saying, God, I'm going to respond appropriately because you've given me everything that pertains to life and godliness. Lord, it's right there. I just don't quite know how to use it yet. Maybe you get a toolbox for Christmas. It's like the weird, my dad taught me this important lesson and I didn't listen to him. He said, I must never let bring a screwdriver or a tool onto my premises at home. And if I do, it must be in somebody else's hand. That's just great wisdom for one day when you have your own home. Because what's happened now is I have tools and I have screwdrivers on my premises. So now it's my responsibility to fix it all. Now it is there, it needs to be fixed. But maybe you get for your bachelor's, for your birthday, whatever, you get this really great toolbox with all of these amazing tools. You have all of the tools. And now the toilet's leaking. You might not know how to use the tool yet. Maybe you need to go Google, you need to watch some YouTube videos. My kids are brilliant at the University of YouTube. It's amazing what they can learn. So this morning my daughter comes in and She's doing this chopstick thing with tweezers. Not with tweezers, sorry, with toothpicks. I'm like, what are you doing? No, she's going to eat with chopsticks today. I'm like, let me find you some proper chopstick at least. So I dig in the cupboard, I find some chopsticks. I'm like, where did you learn about chopsticks? She said, YouTube. You can learn anything on YouTube, she tells me. <laughs> Just watch some videos, you know how to do it. So YouTube, some videos... You need to learn how to use the tool. Have you got the tool? Yes. Do you know how to use the tool yet? Not quite. Maybe there's a parallel in that. God has given us this toolbox with everything that pertains to life and godliness. What do we need to do? Let me learn to use that tool. Do we get that analogy a little bit? I need to wrap up. Back to Peter. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. The more you grow like this, what is this that we are growing in? Godliness, self-control, brotherly affection, love, knowledge, all of those beautiful things that he says we must grow in. The more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that a beautiful promise? But those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. So, dear brothers and sisters, work hard to prove that you really are among those God has called and chosen. Do these things and you will never fall away. And then I love this verse, what is it, verse 11. Then God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Then if you guys have ever watched any of these movies with like the princess or something, I've got three daughters. There are lots of princess movies in our home. Most of them Barbie princess movies. Crazy thing about Barbie, it's a good thing and a bad thing. Maybe not the newer ones, but the older Barbie movies. Guess what happens at the end of every Barbie movie? Where are all the Barbie watchers around there? Be honest. Guess what? Barbie gets married. But fortunately, she always marries Ken. So at least that's good for my kids to kind of realize it's just the one guy. She's marrying him over and over and over in all of the different stories. But, you know, there's this Barbie princess, and then there's this ball carrying on. There's this in all of them, many of them. There's like the king is there and then Barbie arrives. And everyone like stops and turns and it's like, wow, look at the dress Barbie is wearing today. The princess has arrived. This is grand entrance as she steps in to the place of honor. And there's a bit of that picture that we see here. God will give you a grand entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, to me, sounds pretty amazing. That there's this grand entrance waiting for us. But what is the key to our grand entrance? 
It's how do we respond to the call to godliness? How do we respond to the call to grow and to be changed? We saw a couple of weeks ago that I think it was Paul who says that this is what really matters. I think I said this just now as well. What really matters is the fruit of our salvation, our character, the deeds that are worthy, that are glorifying Christ. And then verse 12, Therefore, I will always remind you about these things. What are these things? The importance of godliness. Even though you already know them and are standing firm in the truth you have been taught. And it is only right that I should keep on reminding you as long as I live. For our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. And so I will work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I am gone. We spend a lot of time in studies, in scriptural studies, as an example, looking at the last words of what people should say and what people do say. The last words, last words of Jesus, what is last instruction, sort of go into the world and preach the gospel. That's it. it carries weight for us, a little bit more weight, because it's his last words, it's his last desire. He's got one thing left to say, what is he going to say? And so here is Peter writing his last letter. He says that, um, where were we, verse... 14, our Lord Jesus Christ has shown me that I must soon leave this earthly life. He knows he's come to the end. The same Peter who's spent his entire adult life following Christ, pursuing Christ, who had this incredible encounter where for three years he walked with Jesus, probably closer than anybody else. Jesus investing, building, sowing into his life, and he comes right to the end of it. And he says, if there's one thing that I can leave behind, if there's one thing that I'm going to keep saying over and over and over so that one day in the future when I'm not here, when somebody closes their eyes, they see me face, what is my face, what is it that they remember? It's this thing, that they would remember the value of godliness. He says, I work hard to make sure you always remember these things after I am gone. Never forget, if there's one thing I can leave for you, one thing that's my life's message, apart from the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, if there's one thing that I can hold before you as Christians, as followers of Christ, never ever to forget, it's don't forget this. Don't forget that God wants us to live in a way where our actions don't only line up with our mouths, but our actions line up with our hearts. Hearts that are surrendered and dedicated to Christ. Can we stand this evening? I'd love for us to pray together. I'd love to pray that we bring our hearts before Christ. I'd love to pray that we invite Him to come and cause us to love Him even more. That our devotion would only grow, that our, as Peter prays, that our knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord would only expand more and more. So Jesus, right now we do that. We pray, God, that you would cause us to grow more and more in grace and peace as we grow in our knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. We want to bring our hearts before you, God. Say, Jesus, we love you, but more than that, we want to love you. We want to see you. We want to be drawn in by you and towards you, Lord God. We want to lose ourselves in your love, Lord God. And so I pray for grace that we may draw near to you more and more every day. Jesus, that you would be central to all we are and all we do, that our identity would be shaped not by what others have said, Lord, not by our struggles that we've had in the past, not by the lies the enemy has spoken over us, but our identity would be formed in the fact that we are loved by you, Lord God. And Lord, we pray for grace that out of that love and out of that devotion, Lord, would flow actions that are pleasing and glorifying to you, Lord God. I thank you, God, that you have given us not a spirit of fear and intimidation, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so even tonight, we receive that spirit again, Lord God. The spirit of self-control, Lord Jesus. 
Self-discipline, God. I pray for every single person in this room who struggles with some way of self-control. And I thank you that I can speak into them and over them that you have given them everything that pertains to living a godly life, Lord. I pray, God, that you would renew our knowledge of and just our understanding of your precious promises for us, Lord. And that those promises allow us to partake in your divine nature. In Jesus' name, God. Lord, we want to come and just surrender to you and before you, Lord. We want to never, ever forget about living lives where our hearts are reflected in our actions. In Jesus' name. So while our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, I just want to make an invitation. If you're here tonight and you're saying, Philip, I realize there's so much in my life where my heart and my actions don't line up. I really do love God, but my actions don't demonstrate my love for Christ. Or maybe you struggle with self-control or lies spoken about your identity, things that the enemy has told you you will never be able to overcome. Tonight, I want to pray with you. I would so love to pray with you. And so just a moment, Gary is going to come up and he's going to continue to lead us in worship for a moment. And I want to ask you to step forward and allow us to pray with you and for you. To trust that God is going to shift something in the Spirit over your life. He's going to begin to lead you more and more in victory. He's going to tear away the lies that have attached themselves to your identity. And He's going to allow you to see you as you are. To see you through His eyes. He's going to trust that God will reveal precious promises of what He has called you to. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Christian Church. We believe that you enjoyed your time with us, establishing God's kingdom and His glory in your life. For more info, call us on 012-362-1363. Email us, pretoria at shofaronline.org. Browse our website, www.shofaronline.org. Or like us on facebook.com forward slash Pretoria.